Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. Good morning, church. Today's scripture is actually from Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. It reads, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God, so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, so that you may be able to withstand on the evil day and, having prevailed against everything, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, and belt your waist with truth, and put on the breastplate of righteousness, and lace up your sandals in preparation for the gospel of peace. With all of these, take the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times in every prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert and always persevere in supplication for all the saints. Pray also for me, so that when I speak a message may be given to me, and to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it boldly, as I must speak. The word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, God. So I have a, um, a joke for you. How do you know someone went to Duke? Because we'll tell you, yeah. I'm going to start with that because I'm about to talk a little bit about Duke. <laughs> so um, we can put up that picture. Duke is an interesting place to be, especially for someone in seminary. And it was originally a seminary before anything else, but it's still a very interesting place to be. It's an interesting place to go to seminary because everything about the architecture and the ceremony and the grandeur of that place is there to daily tell you something very particular. Everything about it is crafted to tell you that you have come to a place of great power. It's made to tell you that. Maybe once you get, you know, you went to school, um, maybe, well, maybe some of you went to a school like this, but once you get to a school like this, a major kind of research university like this one, it's like a city all into itself where these 
three rivers meet, the river of knowledge and the river of money and the river of social influence. All together, one place, this is Duke. And you put them all together and you get an institution that manufactures our country's leaders, right? It manufactures our country's values often. And even our nation's ideals come out of a place like this. That is, that's power. And when we like this kind of power, when we like it, when we feel buoyed up by it, and we, we call it one of our, our favorite words, one of the most dazzling words we have, we call it contribution to society. Look at this place's contribution to the world of medicine, right, David? Look at this place's contribution to the world of finances. Look at this place's contribution to the world of politics. But when we don't like that kind of power, we call it something else. When we feel excluded by that power or rejected by it or diminished by it, we tend to call it one of our most suspicious words that we have, privilege, right? But if you are a freshman at Duke, and believe me, I was never a freshman at Duke. Undergrad is a whole different world than grad school. It's so different. But if you were a freshman at Duke, um, all this power is just a little too much for any like 19-year-old to take in. Because everyone knows that it costs a colossal amount of money <laughs> to study here as an undergrad. Also grad, but mostly undergrad. And either your family is wealthy enough to pay it, or you have been clever enough, honored enough to get someone else to pay for it, to go there. Both of which are forms of privilege. But real contribution there, that's a completely different thing. Students come into Duke experiencing the privilege and the awe of it, and the overwhelming burden of choice there is there. Choice is supposed to be this wonderful thing, but real contribution, um, yeah, choice can be in vain. If without a real contribution, your choices that you are given, all these choices could be in vain. Privileges to be in the position of having loads of choices, right? But real contribution arises out of having made good choices while you were at Duke, and so here's the predicament. And that's the challenge of being an undergraduate at a major research university um, today, any one of them, not just Duke, because the question for them while they're there is not, will I fit in, which is you know, your normal 19-year-old's question, or will I get good grades, or will I get on the team, or will I learn to tolerate my roommates snoring or, or sleep talking, or, or even will anyone actually be employing in my field in 2025? The question there with, within these four years, the real question is, will my privileged access to knowledge and money and social connections actually turn into a real contribution in the world. You can acquire knowledge anywhere, doesn't have to be there. There are books and websites and life experiences aplenty outside of Duke. You can get money elsewhere. Half of the richest people in the country never ever went to college. <coughs> you can establish social connections elsewhere. The university isn't the only place to win friends and influence people, right? But these four years aren't fundamentally about those things. They're about this kind of percolating, discerning of this shared and personal, mundane and wonderful discoveries and adventures and reflections of body and mind and spirit that all come together 
contribute to our flourishing and the overall flourishing of others. Becoming a part of a university is quite similar, I would say, in some ways to becoming a Christian. When you are baptized, you become a part of a church. And the church is at least as bewildering as a university like this one. I would say a lot more so. The church stretches back and forward in time across every nation and people between the saints in heaven and the faithful on earth. What is the deal with that? We're quick to jump on all the small-mindedness and and naked ambition and misuse of power and weakness of will of the church. But, But there are also hosts of of sacrificial elements and examples of, of discipleship and mission and ministry and holiness. There are countless works of theological wisdom and insight. There are myriads of testimonies of hope and, and guides for prayerful living. There are dizzying varieties of worship and witness and music and dance, let alone politics and potluck dinners. All of this is contained in this word church. And when we like it and feel inspired and moved by it, We call that beauty holiness. But when we don't like it, or see only its clumsy and cruel and self-serving humanity, we call it hypocrisy, right? Or self-righteousness. One of the first exercises that they have us do um, as a first-year seminary student (coughs) at Duke is um, they have us take a spiritual formation class. Um, And the students in your spiritual formation class are from different denominations and backgrounds. It's a range of ages between 25 and 60 in a room of about 8 to 10 people. It's a required part of being in the degree program for divinity. Um, And at our first class, we we each drew a graph of our faith journey, tracing the highs and the lows of our closeness to God as if taking a printout of like a heart monitor. And when it was time to share these graphs with each other in this class, we discovered something very interesting. Some of us had dramatic or very difficult childhoods. Some of us had profound moments as teenagers. Some of us had grown uh, more deeply in our faith later in life. But what shone through loud and clear was that every single one of us had had a significant, perhaps decisive, faith experience between the ages of 17 and 24. And you'd think that faith experience, because of the people in the room, was like, I saw God high and lifted up, (laughs) and his words were real to me and told me to go and make zillions of disciples in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But none of these stories were like that. It was much more ordinary than that. (coughs) The stories were like, my campus minister left town to do some other job and I ended up leading this whole group for a semester and I really grew to enjoy it and I was kind of good at it. And another story, like my sister got this mystery illness and it took her, took over our family's life and I, I was so amazed by her courage that it changed everything for me in my life. 
or I, I summoned up um, the will to go to a choir audition one day when I was 19 years old at college and for the first time in my life I discovered I could make something beautiful with other people. In other words, what we all in different ways were saying was, I found this daunting, sometimes alienating heritage and tradition and culture of church wasn't, in fact, a distant heap of irrelevance in my life or an oppressive burden to me. Oh my gosh, I discovered it wasn't that. Somehow, in that moment, it became mine. And I realized that it belonged to me as much (laughs) as it did to anyone else who owns this. And in fact, it was a gift passed to me to enjoy and to benefit from and to dig into. And yes, Yes, I still get infuriated with it and I feel let down by it. And I even feel unworthy of it sometimes. But it has become the source of my life and I deeply, unalterably love it. That was a moment of great awakening for me because since then I have sensed that to be a Christian that can live with and enjoy and even love the church It's vital, almost indispensable, to have found a way to make it your own, to make friends with its saints, and make its books your library, and make its sacraments your staging posts, and make its rhythms your daily song, to not just go to church, but to own it and make a contribution to it. And it's our doers here. It's our doers who get this. The rest of us, not so much, but they do. And even though not a single one of my top five, not a single one of my top five strengths are doing doing traits. Apparently I do nothing, ever. (laughs) It has been at the heart of my ministry to say to people, make the church your own. Make friends with its saints. Make its sacraments your staging posts. Make its rhythms your daily song. Enjoy them, love them. It's been uniquely a part of my call to show you how to do that, to motivate you to do that, since I apparently don't do it. (laughs) Um, This is what the final chapter of this letter of Ephesians is telling us, friends. What we're given is this list of some of the most pious and abstract vocabulary in the Christian dictionary. First, there's truth, and then there's righteousness, and then there's peace, and then there's faith, and then there's salvation, and then finally there's spirit. We sang a lot about spirit earlier in our, in our service. Most of us have sat in a room with other Christians and heard people toss around all of these words before in a way that made them feel absurdly pious or pretentious and made us feel small and outside of whatever they were feeling or doing. And so Ephesians, having... Spent five chapters now, we've gone, we are at the end of Ephesians, five chapters explaining in all this theological language what these important words mean in the life of Israel and Jesus and the church concludes by whispering to us. If you want to have a clue, this is how you make these cherished but rather grand words your own. You get dressed in them. One of those words is truth. 
Think of truth, Ephesians says, like a belt. It should be all the way around you where your top half of idealism meets your bottom half of reality of life. Righteousness, another one of those words. Think of righteousness as a breastplate. You may want others to admire your biceps or your, your shapeliness or your coat hanger shoulders or your hairy chest, but think of righteousness as a breastplate. What they're really looking at is whether your life is as truthful as your words are. Peace, there's another one of those words. Peace is like your shoes. It's the most important garment of all of them. My daughter would also say that. She goes around, shoes, 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 shoes. Uh, It's useless making shoes out of soft tissue. It needs to be sturdy and hard-wearing, but flexible and comfortable. When you imagine peace, it's got to be like shoes that will walk a very long way. Faith, another one of those words. Think of faith, it says, like a shield. A shield doesn't stop bad things from happening. It doesn't prevent you from being attacked, right? But it does usually change the external reality. It doesn't, oh, sorry, it doesn't usually change the external reality that much, but it does keep your heart pumping and, and your life going and your spirit thumping even when like the slings and arrows of life come at you, right? And then finally, We're down to salvation and spirit, the two words that we know the least of what they really mean. But wear them, Ephesians says. Think of salvation like a helmet. Salvation is forgiveness, healing, and eternal life all wrapped up into one. It's too much to keep in your head. So you have have to have a helmet to keep these most precious fruits of faith safe. A helmet is like a shield. They can't be used as weapons against others, right? So neither can you use salvation as a weapon against others. They're just the gifts of God given to us all as people who are safe in God forever. And then, and then finally it says spirit. You should think of spirit like a sword. What, what, what we have here is this description of an outfit of a Roman soldier, Because the Roman soldier was the literal and metaphorical description of power in the life of the early Christians. But only this last item actually does something. Have you thought about that? The others are all forms of clothing or protection, and that's because the first five are about us, whereas only the last one, spirit, is describing a dimension of God. Think of spirit like a sword, sharp, it says, terrifying, dynamic, exciting, and a way of focusing power in the one particular place it ought to be. What we've been given here in Ephesians is this invitation to make the language and beliefs and actions and hopes of the Christian faith our own. Just as if you were, you were putting on a set of clothes and leaving on them your own creases and your own marks and your own stains and worn patches. Inhabit the faith, the letter says. Put these beliefs to work. Make them yours. Try them out. You're given. They're given to you so that you can discover what it means to be a part of the church. And what it really means to be a part of the church is to be a part of people using and enjoying these gifts 
and allowing themselves in the process to be transformed into a reflection, sometimes good, sometimes bad, seldom perfect, but, but nonetheless a reflection of the crucified and resurrected Christ. And it's the doers in our midst who uniquely get this, who uniquely get that the church was built to be owned and to seek to make a real contribution to it. So who are our doers? Are you here? Yeah, we got a lot of you. Yeah. Probably our largest segment, I think. Um, often I would say, I would say largest segment because our think, thinkers come to church a little less than doers. Focus experts. Any focus experts? Yes. They are a part of this owning by focusing on one project, one essential thing until the finish line, rather than changing course and never finishing anything. They're the people in our midst who get stuff accomplished. They, they can't stand distraction. <laughs> that can interrupt them from focusing on the one thing that is at hand. If there is one thing the church needs to be about, then they will get that done. <laughs> These are the focus experts they own. They own the church through their focus. Anybody a timekeeper? Timekeepers, I know you got a lot of these. I like to think, I mean like, when I'm, I, these are the people who try to keep me on schedule during a service or keep a leadership meeting at the right length. Um, Y'all drive me crazy. Uh, <laughs> but timekeepers are, they believe that owning the church is about doing things now. And when you say that you're going to do something, they do it, and they do it when they say they're gonna do it. <laughs> they're the people that if they signed up on a volunteer list, they're going to be there and they're going to be on time. <laughs> they enjoy setting up processes and timelines and plans. They're, you're the people that are always telling me in your sweet, sweet, calm way. It doesn't seem like you have a plan for this, Michelle. <laughs> um, and you say things like, do you need somebody to lead that? What you're really saying is, sounds like you don't got anybody to lead that. Um, Timekeepers get confused in chaos where, either, where neither outcomes nor ways to achieve them are clear. This, and so I can lose a doer, a blessed doer in my life because I haven't given you and uh, done this before. Absolutely, I'm guilty. Um, haven't given you uh, the outcomes nor the ways to achieve what I've, been, uh, what I've asked you to do. Problem solvers, any problem solvers? Yeah. Um, problem solvers own the church by finding the bugs with the church, uncovering the flaws with the church. Your problem solvers, though, a little different from your analysts. Your analysts are the more thinking type of that. Analysts just find problems but don't necessarily want to be a part of fixing them. I mean, unless they have the problem solver feature also in their, in their height. Analysts just like analyze and see the problems. But the problem solver only finds the problems because they trust that the church can be owned and the things can be fixed. They find it hard to sweep problems under the rug either because they own it and they want it to be better. They want 
problems to be solved so the church can be at its best. Any deliverers? Deliverers, awesome. Deliverers are also a little bit like timekeepers, but um, in that, but it's in a more of a holistic sense. They commit. Deliverers are committed people. They sign up and they show up. They say they're going to do something and they do it. There is never flightiness in a deliverer, um, and they enjoy seeing how it how it builds more trust. The more you show up, they're the deliverers are the ones who see that the more I show up, the more it builds more trust and respect among others to show up to. They're the ones that um, know at a potluck if there's nobody who's uncovered the dish, that nobody's gonna eat it. So they'll be the one who uncovers it and eats it first so that the rest of the crowd might also accomplish the purpose of eating, right? (laughs) And then the believers. Any believers? That long list of sacred words, if you don't know what they mean and you're still trying to figure them out and you're not even quite sure if all the things we professed in the creed earlier, you actually believe, but you're showing up here anyways, thank God for our believers because without having to have it explained, without having to have it delineated as as things you're putting on your body like Ephesians does, they just believe it. It's a miraculous thing. Brett just believes it. Um, Which is, I I, I am just in awe of people who who do. They just believe it. Mary Mary was a virgin and gave birth to the Son of God. Sign me up, I believe it. And they follow through on their commitments and they enjoy seeing things, how it builds more trust and respect um, among people, when they believe things, they notice that other people start believing it too. These are our doers, these people who get that in order for the church to be swole, it has to be built by being owned by the people. Did you know that, that that's the actual word we use for liturgy? That's what liturgy means. It's the work of the people that's owned by the church. And the key to flourishing in a place like Duke where power and privilege are on display or a place like the church isn't to be at the top of the class or to have the most friends or to win the most athletic prizes. It's to make a space like that your own. It's our doers who hold the key to flourishing here. They hold the key to flourishing faith that the key is to make it your own. You know how Tom and, and Jerry cartoons, Jerry always um, has that tiny, um, tiny mouse pounds this like enormous feather pillow. You know, like, do you remember that? Have you, do you watch those? No? Oh, over your head. Okay, whatever. But in these cartoons, he's always pounding this enormous like feather pillow and he pounds it and he pounds it until he makes it the perfectly his own and then he settles down into it and he sleeps like as if he's never slept before. It's the doers who are pounding the pillow. And they're pounding it so that you might settle into it too. That, that way you'll discover what true holiness is. Because true holiness is knowing and reflecting and embodying the mind of Christ and the mind of God in Christ is this. That he wrestled with us and he cherished us and he longed for us and sought us out for one 
reason and one reason only, friends. One reason only. He longs for you and has shaped his whole life to make you his own. So you might as well make the church your own. Would you pray with me? God, we long to to build um, the church, to be a part of this. I'm so grateful to have so many doers here, not because I refuse to get things done, but because these people, God, are a window into what flourishing faith looks like. Thank you, God, for those who believe, who just believe. Thank you, God, for those who who show up because they know that by them showing up, others will too. Thank you, God, for those who do what they say they will do. Thank you, God, for those who contribute, who put a mark on this place, not because of their whims and their wants, but because they know that this place has a way of shaping eternity. God, I thank you for our thinkers and our doers and our motivators and our feelers. May you build this church, God. We love this place. We love these people. God, we pray for for this church that it might be strengthened by you and that we might be swole by being people who boast in the cross. We join together in that prayer, God, that you taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.